So I wanted to start in 2017. You're a New York Times staff reporter and you break this story about a secret Pentagon operation that is investigating UFOs. And the reason I want to start in 2017 is to gain a better understanding for how things have changed so much. In 2021, there's probably not a mainstream publication that hasn't scratched the surface, at least, about UFO investigations and conversations. But what was the climate like in 2016, 2017, in regards to mainstream conversations? Yeah, uh, you're very right to put your finger on that. It was very different. Um, uh, UFOs were still a laughable topic. Uh, Members of Congress didn't uh, raise the subject uh, except very carefully and infrequently. Um, uh, Mainstream publications, uh, many of them wouldn't touch the subject, or when they did, it was uh, very uh, snarky, uh, the way the New York Times often did uh, historically. Uh, So it was a very different uh, era, especially now that the uh, Pentagon has basically confirmed the physical uh, existence of UFOs. Does Where does this shift happen? Was it a specific moment? Was your story a pivotal, uh, I guess, a a measurable moment that sparked this? Or is it just an inevitable momentum? Where do you think this change happened? Because it seems pretty rapid in the past few years. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Well, um, a little of both. Uh, I mean, uh, look, we, 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 the New York Times, has been given a lot of credit for changing the paradigm, and I'm happy to accept that and acknowledge that, and I think we did play an important part. But there was a lot of other things going on. Um, historically, uh, it, it's been a, uh, you know, a continuum, um, and uh, a lot of people contributed to it. But... Um, um, I think uh, the, you know, uh, reporting the existence of ATIP, uh, which was one of the names that the Pentagon program went under, uh, was a, a pivotal moment. And uh, it showed that the government was uh, still in the UFO business, although officially uh, it had closed down its interest with Project Blue Book in, uh, um, you know, in 1970. Uh, but we now know that wasn't true, uh, that they continued their interest. So, I mean, a lot of things contributed. It was a changing uh, field, uh, you know, long term. But it, I think it took the New York Times article to really accelerate the change. Did you feel like there was a higher threshold for uh, verification or good journalism because of the topic um, in terms of you've written about Uh, the mafia and Nazi war criminals. Do you find that the UFO topic made you go above and beyond typical standards and practices? Well, I mean, I was trained at the New York Times and we always had high standards. And again, when you're writing about the mafia or political corruption, uh, you you need very, you know, uh, impeccable sources. You need to have people on the record, Uh, particularly with the UFO story. Um, we, we took great pains to have everybody on the record, to have documents we could cite. Uh, there were no anonymous sources in that story, uh, that, are, you know, that, on which the story was hung. So, um, I think that was very important. But I, you know, I, I, I consider the, the UFO story a continuation of my other reporting for the Times, which was always very rigorous and had to adhere to very high standards and, uh, a lot of fact checking, you know, by editors. So it wasn't 
really different uh, in um, in substance. Maybe you know we were a little more careful, but um, you know it goes with the New York Times reporting. Moving into your book, The Believer, what personally sparks your interest in this story? Because I imagine. Uh, there's a big difference between writing an article and writing a book. That is a big commitment. So what sparks your interest to start this journey? Okay, so the book long predated the article I did for the New York Times. Uh, the book came out of a chance encounter with John Mack's writings. Now, John Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist who, um, uh, sort of against type, got interested in the whole idea of, you know, alien abduction of people who came forward with stories of having been taken by alien beings. Um, this was not his regular affair as a Harvard psychiatrist. He had been very well grounded in earthly causes, anti-nuclear weapons, peace in the Middle East. He had won a Pulitzer Prize writing about a, a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but this was something different. So, uh, when a when a book, uh, actually John Mack's second book, happened to drop into my lap while I was a New York Times correspondent in Texas, I was intrigued uh, by the idea of a, um, you know, a, a Harvard psychiatrist interested in this topic. Uh, I had no particular background in the topic. I had read science fiction as a kid, but, uh, you know, this was long before my involvement with the, the Times story on UFOs. So I just thought, gee, this is a good story. This Harvard psychiatrist who, who's interested in this strange business. And, um, and the next thing that happened, he was run down in London uh, by a drunk driver. Uh, that was just a few days after I, I, I read his book. So um, uh, suddenly I couldn't interview him anymore. But I got interested in, uh, certainly more interested in, in his whole uh, issue. And I, I got... Uh, access through the family to all his archives, and that's what started me off. Let's go wide with Dr. John Mack, and what was his big moment or his spark of inspiration to pivot in this direction? Because that also seems like a dramatic pivot from his career up until that moment. It was. I mean, he grew up in a very conventional German-Jewish household with you know, no supernatural uh, uh, beliefs in the family, really, not even very religious. Uh, they they didn't really observe Jewish, uh, you know, ritual. Um, but um, through a series of steps that I outline in my book, The Believer, he got more interested in uh, the unseen world. Um, he, uh, he was out in Esalen, which is that think tank on the Pacific, um, and got interested in, in a breathing discipline called holotropic breathing, where he could control his state of consciousness by regulated breathing. And he found himself born back uh, to his birth, basically, or so he thought. And then even to a possible previous life as a Russian peasant who watched his son being <laughs> decapitated by a, a Mongol warrior. Um, so he had all these strange experiences, and it kind of opened him up to the idea that reality is not what he thought it was. <laughs> um, he, he had been brought up, you know, very specifically, that reality is the things we can taste, touch, feel, the table you can wrap your knuckles on. And little by little, uh, he realized that, no, there's other things going on that we don't understand. And then... <clears throat> Uh, he had a chance meeting with Bud Hopkins, uh, who was an artist who had really 
pioneered the whole study of alien abduction, uh, hypnotizing people with these strange stories and and written books about it. And, um, and while John Mack initially thought this was nonsense, it didn't fit into his framework at all, um, he gathered around him some of the, he was intrigued, and he gathered around him some of these same so-called experiencers and heard their stories and, and really got into it rather quickly. One of the things that has come up on this podcast is Harvard in particular, their pushback when it came to psychedelic research. And that was a, a different podcast a few weeks ago. Is I guess I'm I'm kind of curious about Harvard's history of pushbacks. Maybe this is all established universities at the time they were pushing back on cutting edge conversations or fringe conversations. But in this particular moment, at what point does Harvard step in and give him serious pushback? And what was Harvard's state at that time? Well, again, as I, I, I sort of trace this in my book, Harvard really was no stranger to anomalous research. I mean, um, William James, the father of psychology, um, gave some celebrated lectures at Harvard a hundred years before John Mack, where he um, talked about his interest in seances and the spirit world. Um, he was a very freewheeling uh, researcher, uh, interested in ghosts and, uh, as I said, uh, visitations from beyond the grave. Um, so, so Harvard had done a lot of that research, um, and for a long time, um, it kind of uh, turned a blind eye to to Max's research. By the way, he made no secret of his research. He he, he gave one of his first lectures at Harvard, um, and um, brought some an experiencer to to the stage, and played a tape of somebody um, actually having a, a terrible flashback to an abduction experience. So he made no secret of it. But for a while, Harvard. Uh, kind of just accepted it, um, but little by little, the trustees started getting complaints, like what's going on with John Mack, and you know this is looks bad for Harvard. And again, as I point out in my book, Mack was particularly enthusiastic. He was a very passionate, um, you know, researcher. It wasn't just academics for him. He threw himself into everything he did. So it was kind of hard, it got harder and harder for Harvard to ignore it, especially after he'd been on Oprah <laughs> with excuse me, some of his experiences. Um, and as I said, he was not shy about appearing on television and in print. Um, so finally they called him in and uh, uh, said that they were going to convene a committee to investigate him. And it was not a very sympathetic committee. It was a committee of uh, Harvard Medical School superiors who were very um, committed to conventional science in terms of, you know, where's the proof, uh, you know, what's the backup. And of course, with this whole field of alien abduction, there, there was no proof that would satisfy anybody. It was almost all anecdotal. There were fragmentary bits of proof, which we can discuss, but um, really very flimsy in terms of um, really nailing this issue down. So, um, so they investigated him, and it was a very painful episode, but in the end, he was basically exonerated. I mean, they said they found nothing wrong with his, uh, his billing, his methodology, his manner in which he handled patients. Uh, so he, they basically said, just don't be so enthusiastic 
And he said, okay. <laughs> I guess for, for somebody to, to do this and to defy an establishment like Harvard, my question would be, Mac, what was his personality? What type of person was this? Aside from his work, what was his personality on a day-to-day basis? Was he enthusiastic about all his work or did this change once he started investigating UFOs? What was he like uh, in person? Uh, well, he was, um, like all of us, uh, a very complicated person. I mean, uh, he was very charismatic. Everybody agreed on that. Uh, he was uh, very good-looking, tall, um, magnetic to men and women. He had some girlfriends in his life, which I discuss in the book, much to the dismay of his wife, um, which he basically didn't, didn't uh, try to hide. He was attracted to other women. Uh, partly because of this trauma in his life, because his mother died when he was eight and a half months old. She died of appendicitis. And uh, to a young child, this was, you know, the ultimate trauma. He didn't know what had happened to his mother. And then his father later remarried, or very quickly remarried, and uh, he didn't quite get along with his stepmother, who was a very powerful woman, brilliant, another professor. <clears throat> but uh, so he had these issues. Um, and so he always was searching, and he, he really thought that his search for the um, a missing element in the cosmos, uh, intelligent life, let's say, uh, was really related to his search for his, his missing mother. Um, but uh, what everybody agreed on really was his, uh, his, his, mag- his magnetic appeal. Uh, he was very uh, outgoing um, and brilliant as a practitioner, by the way. Very, very learned. He had written books on childhood and childhood development, on nightmares, on a Holocaust survivor, on a girl who committed suicide. So his interests were very wide ranging, and he was very accomplished professionally. So that, that made him hard to argue with, um, uh, because he was such a, an authority in the field of psychiatry. Um, but again, what what most uh, probably his most outstanding characteristic was his likability. And he uh, he exuded confidence. He inspired confidence in others to tell him their stories. Um, he was basically a, a very um, um, you know charismatic, magnetic personality, and that went a long way to to help him. Was there a specific moment during the investigation where his career and reputation were highly at risk? And I guess part two of that if it was at risk, if he was going to be fired or humiliated, would he have, if you were to guess, would he have dropped the topic and said, you know what, this has gone too far? Or was he passionate enough that he was willing to risk the reputation, willing to risk his job at Harvard? Um, If you were to guess, would he pursue this if it was that serious or got that serious? Uh, well, it was that serious, and he and he did pursue it. Um, he faced down a lot of uh, prominent critics, uh, as I say, including the Harvard, what I call the Harvard Inquisition, which is a word that they used at one point um, w- to explain what it wasn't. They said, <laughs> but of course, uh, Mac, being a psychiatrist, wondered, well, why did they use that word if that's what it wasn't? <laughs> um, but uh, well, he did face one particular crisis, which again, I. I tell in some detail in the book, um, a woman came to him um, saying that she was a, an experiencer. She'd been abducted and she had all these experiences. And after 
Um, um, he, he met with her and, and uh, spent time listening to her story. She then went to Time magazine and said um, it was all a hoax, that she had made up the story, a very elaborate story of being on a spaceship with the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and President John Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was a, an astounding story, which John Mack kind of, uh, he was definitely interested in it. Um, and uh, when she told Time magazine that she had hoaxed him, Time magazine ran a big story about, um, you know, uh, Mac being gullible. And uh, so th that did hurt him a lot. Now, in the end, uh, uh, Mac concluded that she probably was an experiencer after all, and uh, that she was, um, for very complicated reasons, out to expose him or to bring him down. But she had told other people about these experiences, um, even other than Mac, uh, before she targeted Mac. So, and I interviewed her in the book, by the way, for the book. Uh, so her story is there. But that was definitely a low point. But to answer the second part of your question, no, Mac never uh, got to the point where he said, I've got to give this up. This is too painful or, um, you know, there's too much opposition to me. He wasn't that kind of guy. As a matter of fact, as I point out in the book, um, he, he, towards the end of his life, he got more adventurous and, and started looking into other anomalies like uh, survival of consciousness and life after death and the Holy Grail legend and, you know, a lot of strange things that fit into this broader rubric of unexplained experiences. Um, and, and Mac came to realize that abduction was really not something necessarily apart, but part of a broader mystery of, of another world or dimension out there that, that we can't explain. It's pretty interesting as I learn about this story. He's had such a wild life, and obviously there are some incredible moments, but something that was just fascinating is the person that is willing to persevere throughout humiliation and losing a job at the most prestigious university. It's it's very interesting, that type of person that's willing to keep going in a way that almost is the standout trait of the story to me. Somebody that just says, we're just going to keep going right to the end. Yeah. Well, he had tremendous confidence. And Bud Hopkins actually thought that was the key to his whole character, that um, he, um, despite this trauma in his life and that he was always searching for the missing mother, uh, he, he was born with great confidence, with, with a great sense of self-confidence, which his parents instilled in his father and stepmother instilled in him. His father was a professor at City College, an English professor, when I happened to go there. Um, and I, 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 I knew his father as a great in professor of English, a great scholar. I didn't know that he had a son named John Mack, who, I'd, who would end up taking 16 years of my life <laughs> later on. Um, but uh, his, his father and his stepmother imbued in him this, this confidence, uh, which, which really did help him and, um, and gave him the strength to persevere, even in the face of all these setbacks. Aside from the Time article specifically, during the research, is there a specific moment that you would classify as his biggest professional error, his biggest professional mistake, um, aside from the Time article? I, as I also say in the book, I think he jumped into the whole issue uh, a little too quickly, he jumped into it publicly. 
um, he had this uh, some someone at Esalen where he had gone for the breathing uh, discipline told him about um, Bud Hopkins, an artist who was investigating the strange business of alien abduction. And um, and Mac sort of blew her off and said, you know, it sounds crazy. Uh, then something, something, you know, serendipitous, uh, synchronistic, however you want to call it, made him. He happened to be in New York and he called Bud Hopkins. Um, so um, he learned about it. Uh, this, this alien abduction business, and as I said, he gathered his own group of experiences around him. Uh, but very quickly, and I, I think almost too quickly, uh, he um, um, told the story of his research at um, a, a couple of events in um, at Harvard, a faculty lunch and a grand rounds, which is basically a lecture. Um, to the Harvard community, and he hadn't really checked it out very carefully yet. It was, you know, within a year or two of hearing about it for the first time. So I think, um, in retrospect, that was probably a mistake, and uh, he was faulted uh, later in his career for not publishing uh, peer-reviewed material uh, about his research. Now, he had a good answer to that. He said he tried, and he was rejected. Um, it was such a complicated field that the the professional journals um, uh, wouldn't touch it unless he really explained it in great detail longer than they had space for in the journals. So uh, they basically, one journal wanted, uh, you know, he, he handed them a uh, hundred thousand words, I, I believe, uh, and um, uh, it was just a gigantic manuscript, a book, basically, and they said, well, cut it down and, and include more material, <laughs> um, which he couldn't do. So, um, but again, uh, had he proceeded a little more methodically, a little more slowly, a little more carefully, um, he, he probably would have avoided some of the um, criticism he later got. On that note, and even aside from Mac, do you find one of the greatest risks for journalists today and one of the biggest errors is getting too excited or rushing into a story. Do you think that's just a, a tale as old as time, and that's a, a risk that people still deal with to this day? Well, that's for sure. I mean, uh, one of the things you learn in journalism is to temper your enthusiasm and to check things out and don't go, you know, jumping on a... St you can jump on a story, but you can't put it into print or on the air until you've, you know, checked it out carefully. And, you know, if it seems too good to be true, it might be. So um, there are there are cautionary lessons for sure. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, as journalists, we hear about amazing things and we, we do get excited uh, about them and we want to be the first to break the story, especially in this, you know, social media age where the competition, all they have to do is push a button, you know, uh, on, the, you know, TikTok or Facebook book or something, and they can beat you on a story. So the competition is, is more intense than ever. And the need to, to vet, you know, the story carefully before you put it out is, is of course, greater, is, is greater than ever, um, because it's so easy to make a mistake. Um, so, um, you know, I think, uh, as you said, it's, um, it's, it's a particularly difficult time now. Uh, with stories. Now, it was a little different uh, in the 
70s when John, well, 1990s, I should say, when John Mack was uh, in his heyday at Harvard, the internet was still in its infancy. And, um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, it was always a danger to, to, to jump on, on the story without adequate, um, you know, vetting and safeguards. Seems like such a challenge because you need the excitement to be motivated and inspired to pursue a story to the extent that you do, but you also have to remain neutral and then add social media and the rapid nature of journalism. It's a, it's a challenging time to be an investigative journalist, I imagine. Oh, now, now more than ever. I mean, again, uh, had this story come out today, I think it would have been much more difficult. And actually, I got a taste of that when Leslie Kane and I, my collaborator in uh, the, the New York Times stories, along with Elaine Cooper for the first big story. But when Leslie and I were chasing follow-ups, we were being tracked on the Internet. And every time we interviewed somebody, you know, something would pop up on, on social media. Oh, the Times people have interviewed so-and-so. That means they're going to write about this or that. So that made our work so much more difficult because journalism uh, really um, has to operate uh, quietly before something, you know, appears. Officially, you have to check things out. You have to get your sources. Um, uh, you have to figure out what the story is and what you're going to give the weight to and that can't be done in a under the spotlight i mean that has to be done in the background then when you're ready to publish or air something you know then you have it all um you know checked out but uh, we were tracked uh, every step of the way with people sort of jumping the gun and predicting what we were going to say and then being disappointed when we didn't say more uh, because we didn't have it nailed down so um, we got a taste of that, of this new world of, uh, you know, uh, uh, internet journalism. And um, boy, it made it hard. Do you find in the world of UFO investigations and the culture online that surrounds it that this story specifically has a lot of excitement and that excitement does lead to skipping over verification or, like you said, people online wanting more, faster is this a specific story that you've noticed that people are almost overly excited and passionate or every niche has communities and there's no difference? Well, this, more, this much more than almost anything I've ever covered because the subject is so sensational. I mean, when you think of it, there is nothing more interesting or mysterious than the question of, you know, are there other intelligences in the universe? Um, you know, that along with what happens after we die, <laughs> and is there a God? <laughs> Probably the three big questions. So, and maybe they're all related. Um, but, um, uh, so more than anything I've ever covered, yeah, there's a great excitement in this story, and there's a lot of speculation. Uh, now, in the New York Times stories that we did, we steered clear of a question of alien involvement and, you know, where these uh, UFOs are coming from. Uh, why are they here? Uh, how did they get here? Who's behind the wheel, if anyone or anything? Um, we were very careful, just like the Pentagon is very careful, is, in saying that um, let's talk about what we can confirm. And that is that these objects do exist physically by all accounts now. That's a big breakthrough. 
uh, they, they're real. They're not marsh gas. They're not, you know, hallucinations. They're not fly specks on the windshield. They're not all the things that people... The, the government itself said to throw people off the track, even though they knew better. It's not the planet Venus. <laughs> um, not weather balloons. Although there are, obviously, there are many cases of these natural objects being mistaken for UFOs. That's absolutely true. But the most compelling sightings made by Navy pilots, let's say, who are our most trained observers and, and veterans who fought in World War II who know, you know, what the skies look like and other aircraft, um, <clears throat> um, it, um, so the big breakthrough was now, as I say, confirming for the first time that, uh, yes, these things do physically exist. We don't know anything about them, but we know that they exist. So, um, you know, that that is a big breakthrough. What on that note, what is the U.S. government's official response or statement to these UFOs? And has it changed at all throughout the years? Have they tweaked it or there's been one response and this is what we say it is? No, no, they, it has changed dramatically and radically. Uh, in the June 25th uh, UAP task force, by the way, the government prefers UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, to the word, to the phrase UFOs, because UFOs <laughs> maybe sounds too spooky, uh, just like they abandoned flying saucers. Um, they uh, pretty much don't like the term UFO, which is the historic term, uh, which you know sort of became common in the in the 60s. But whether, whatever you call them, uh, the government has completely changed its view. In in the report that it put out um, on June 25th, which was a landmark report, even though it stopped short of uh, saying a lot of things that people wanted the government to say, such as you know where these things are coming from and who's who's running them and all that. The government did not say that at all. All it said was that these things appear to be physically real and represent a threat uh, to conventional aircraft, uh, which is a big <laughs> concession, let's say, to what they said before over the years. So to answer your question, yeah, it's a, a landmark change uh, in, um, in the government position. And now they, you know, the Pentagon was even uh, encouraging um, service people to come forward with stories for many years. Anyone who came forward was referred to the psychiatrist. It was a career ender. You know, if you uh, said that you were up in a, a, a fighter jet and you saw, uh, you know, something strange that uh, flew circles around you or appeared and disappeared and plunged into the water, by the way, these things do seem to go into the water and out of the water, which no one understands. Um, but uh, if you reported that, you were jeopardizing your military career. Well, now, officially, the Navy and a little later, the Air Force has said, uh, um, we encourage you to come forward with your reports and, uh, and make an official report. And these reports are particularly um, compelling, as I say, because these are our most highly trained observers. These are people who, uh, the, you know, the recipient of millions of dollars worth of high-level Technological training. They're not mentally ill. They've been screened. Um, so when they report something, and it's not just you know uh, anecdotal accounts by by human witnesses. It's also stuff caught on radar and thermal imaging devices. So they have um, instrumentation confirmation as well. 
when it comes to secret technology or an explanation that this is foreign technology, is that an official explanation? Has that been used? And I guess part two of that question, how do you feel about that being kind of an explanation that you hear online that this could be a secret foreign technology? The, the June 25th Pentagon report uh, did mention five possible explanations for these uh, objects. And, you know, the report sort of runs through the possibilities. One is that then, you know, naturally occurring uh, phenomenon like ice crystals or that they are um, uh, mistaken weather balloons or aircraft, uh, let's say, um, or whether they are foreign technology uh, by our adversaries, Russian and Chinese particularly, um, or whether it's our own secret technology that was trotted out by the military and not acknowledged. And one by one, all these possibilities are basically uh, you know, discounted. Uh, and the most compelling of these is that this is secret technology by our adversaries, um, because in the end, uh, the people that the New York Times that we interviewed uh, are unanimous in saying they are not aware of any earthly country power that has technology like this that can fly, uh, you know, at hypersonic, super hypersonic speeds um, that can operate underwater as well as in the atmosphere, that can become visible, has no visible means of propulsion, no, you know, aerial surfaces like wings or tail. Um, so, um, uh, and, and by the same token, we don't have this technology either, we, the United States, and wouldn't be operating it in, in places where it could run into our own military aircraft off the coast of San Diego or Virginia, where it would cause a huge scandal if we brought down one of our own aircraft by secret technology. Plus, we don't, we don't have this technology, just like our adversaries don't have this technology. Um, so uh, one by one, all these other explanations were discounted until the report said there was one left, which was other. <laughs> that was a big, you know, category, other. And other was that these things are unknown, but they are not earthly, and um, uh, but they, they exist physically. Wow. So your book, The Believer, the link is in our description. I am very fascinated by the personality and the person, Mac, for him to do what he did. And because I asked you what his biggest mistake was professionally, I want to wrap up with a final question. That is, what is his brightest moment professionally? What, in your opinion, was his biggest or greatest accomplishment professionally as we wrap up? Um, I think that he took this subject out of the shadows. He took on an extremely controversial topic, uh, which is, you know, alien beings uh, abducting humans. Um, he he uh, studied it scientifically to the best of his ability, which is, of course, short of ultimate scientific proof because there is no instrumentation that has captured any of these abductions or encounters. Um, there are certain um, bits of physical evidence that, that John Mack found compelling, such as the um, connection between the abduction experiences as told by people and the sighting of UFOs, let's say, 
um, and uh, the, the uh, some physical evidence like grass and, and tree branches being crushed outside the window where the UFO was spotted, uh, physical scars that some of the people could not explain afterwards as if their body was, uh, you know, tested as they remembered it had been by these alien beings. Um, and sometimes there was third-party corroboration. Um, there's a famous case that, that John Mack talked about where two girls had a sleepover, and, um, and during the night, the mother of one of the girls came down to check on them and found them missing. And she called out the police. She was obviously very alarmed. They searched everywhere, uh, could not find the girls, and a few hours later, they turned up back in their beds. And they remembered that they had seen a UFO outside the window, and later they had some, you know, dim recollections, hazy recollections of some encounters with alien beings. So uh, in this case, you had a third party, a mother, saying that the kids were missing at a certain point. Um, so, um, and, and that carried some weight with John Mack. So I think his, his, his willingness to, uh, you know, interview these people at great length, and his book, uh, his first book, Abduction, contains 13 case studies, really very detailed of who these people are. They're not mentally ill. They come from all walks of life. Uh, young and old, children as young as two years old, who would not be, you know, making up, would not be telling stories of books or movies they had seen. You know, the kids are, could be very good witnesses because they're, they're kind of pure. Um, so his, I, I think his, his best moment was his ability uh, to stick with this topic despite all the ridicule, and he was subject to a lot of that, and complaints by his by some of his psychiatric colleagues that he was uh, you know he lost it you know he'd gone off the deep end and yet he he continued asking very good questions